1: Doctor's Kitchen, recipes, health, lifestyle.
0: The insistence that the digital world and the physical world are separate, that some people are still clinging to, is keeping us from designing the physical world properly into the digital world. It's overweighting the digital world. So when people are sort of like resistant to technology or resistant to games or resistant to the metaverse or all these things that they feel overwhelmed are coming, it's sort of like, uh, it's, it's really sort of like this resistance to what is in
1: that it's already blended. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor, I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Technology. The pace of change in our lives is immense. And during my relatively short span as a medic, I've witnessed vast changes in how we use technology in medicine, from the books that are now apps to the large machines that are now handheld devices. In addition, to genomic sequencing and the promise of personalized medicine. And talking with me today about this whole field of transformative tech is Nicole Bradford, CEO and founder of the Willow Group and the executive director and co-founder of the Transformative Technology Lab. She co-founded and built TransformativeTech.org, which is a global ecosystem dedicated to educating gathering and activating well-being tech founders, investors, and innovators. And she helps founders leverage exponential tech for mental and emotional well-being, social and emotional wellness, and human potential. These sound like pretty grand topics, and they should be because this is really at the forefront of where we should be focusing our technology rather than just another social media platform which drives users to engage with the premise of monetizing solely. Now, I'm not trying to say that technology itself is inherently bad. And this podcast episode is essentially all about why technology can be a good thing in many environments as well. She's also a lecturer at Stanford University, has an MBA from Wharton School of Business and attended Singularity University's Global Solutions Program. But what's even more impressive about Nicole is that she held executive positions at a number of gaming companies, including Activision, Blizzard, and Disney. And as it turns out, there is a lot that we in the wellness industry can learn from those industries too. We talk about Nicole's journey to gaming, her experience working in Asia, and what transformative tech actually entails, the health insights that technology can provide us, and the emerging technologies that excite Nicole the most. And as always, I'm doing the thing, which is the podcast recipe of the week, a recipe that reflects the topic of conversation on the pod. And this week's recipe is my easy lemon and ginger Thai curry, which you can find right now on the app. The link is in the bio. iPhone users only, I'm really sorry. Android, we are working really hard on it. You can download the app for free and it will be on the newsletter, which is also free at thedoctorskitchen.com. And I also give you something to read, listen to, or watch every single week that will help you lead lead. A healthier and happier life. I really hope you enjoy this episode. It's full of lots of insights, particularly for those who are interested in emerging technologies as I am, which is essentially why I started an app because I know that our digital environment is just as important as our physical environment as we move toward a meta-like existence. Enjoy the podcast and right at the end, I'm going to give you some of my top tips of emerging technologies to look out for too. Nicole, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I am fascinated by your history as well in terms of where you came to well-being from. Uh, and I wonder if you can share with um, the audience uh, your experience in, in gaming uh, and, and, and that sort of high-level executive world and how you got to uh, meditation and, and the work that you're doing now.
0: Oh great! Um, thank you for asking, and thank you for having me. You know, it's um, it's uh, on the surface when people think about well-being and think about gaming, they don't really see a strong connection. But um, I do, and um, I'll share with that share that with you at the end of my story. But uh, what was happening is that I was um, living in China, and I was operating a game called World of Warcraft, and at the time. Um, you know, I mean, this was in, you know, for six years from starting in 08. um, And so World of Warcraft was incredibly popular in the world still, uh, but also at that point, incredibly popular in China. And so um, I led operations for what was essentially the largest branch of the largest stub of one of the largest games in the world and um and so i did that and and i you know was was loving it and you know i was living in shanghai and shanghai in 08 onwards like when the rest of the world was melting down shanghai was exploding mm-hmm. in sort of like vitality and socially and you know so i had a really you know i had a pretty epic social life and i had a pretty epic job in a country where You know, it's like when you would tell people that you worked for Blizzard, um, you know, people would just be like, oh, you know, they loved it so much as a brand. Um, You know, it's one of those things. There was just a lot of respect for the company uh, because it actually World of Warcraft had been one of the earliest foreign games, Western games there. Um, So it was sort of like universally loved. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was just a really, you know, it was a great time in that sense. Um, But I, you know, I was, um, I had two things going on um, that many people wouldn't know about. One, I, um, um, I thought all the time, like all the time, nonstop, nonstop. I just thought all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, and I had this sense that it was wearing me out. And, and, it felt like it was wearing me out, but I also had this sense that it was wearing me out, uh, like ball bearings, getting too much mm. movement. And, um, and so, you know, like I would, you know, I would make a decision and then I would repeat, repeat my logic for the decision. Even if I had no intention of changing my mind, I re- would repeat the logic for my decision over and over and over again. Like I never stopped thought thinking. Um, And and I think a lot of type A's, you know, a lot of successful people, it's really common Mm -hmm. how much people think. Um, So that was one part. And then the other part that um, I was pretty lonely. Um, You know, people think that, often think that loneliness is a, uh, you know, a result of being alone, (laughs) it's not true. There are people who are alone, who are not lonely. And there are people who are surrounded by people who are lonely. It's really a result of connection Hmm. is really what it's about. And, um, so I was, you know, so I, I was lonely and, and I thought too much. And, um, I had this one month break between roles. I was moving from China to Hong Kong to do a regional role and I had a month off Mm -hmm. and I, decided to um, have a bit of adventure. And so I signed up for three things. One, um, I went to Bhutan um, because I thought, when am I ever going to come back to Bhutan?
1: Mm. Uh,
0: Two, I wanted to learn how to scuba dive. So I went to uh, Kosamui and, uh, you know, and and signed up for a scuba diving. And then, then, I mean, a scuba diving course. And then my third thing was I was going to go on one of these you know, silent meditation retreats. And I had done, you know, um, I had done some meditation like on Insight Timer and a couple of other things, but it was Mm -hmm. like, you know, it was more like relaxation on pillow versus like true meditation. And so I went to Japan for this uh, Goinka style Vipassana Mm -hmm. retreat. And I think it was really the right, the absolute right medicine for me um, Mm -hmm. because uh, Goinka style Vipassana Um, is a very body-based it's a very kinesthetic meditation technique in that you take your consciousness through the body and the, and, you know, in the, and for type A's who like goals, it's like you're like success or do doing it right means taking your mind, you know, bit by bit through your body, bit by bit, by bit, by bit. And I think the counterpoint to thinking you know, being like forced into my body on such a deep level for mm. 10 days straight, 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. And then also, you know, when you're, I mean, have you been on deep retreat?
1: I haven't been on a retreat where we do one form of meditation throughout. I've, I've been on some where we do multiple, like uh, one of my earliest experiences of meditation outside of what my parents taught me when I was a teenager was actually when I went to Thailand and I spent some time in a monastery um, with, some, with some Buddhist monks and we would do sweeping uh, a lot and then we would do different forms of meditation as well. Um, usually transcendental, so you know mantra, repeating in your head and that, that kind of stuff. Um, but not one where the focus of the retreat is, is literally just doing one thing at a time. It was usually quite broken up and for a shorter period of time.
0: Okay, well you're uh, so one that's amazing. Um and uh, you know, and different meditation techniques really work for different people. Mm. Like they're really they're so they're so different. Um you know, we can talk a little bit later. I I helped develop a, a program called the Finders Course, which helps people um, identify which techniques really work for them. Um And so, you know, as a result it just sort of like covered a lot of ground, but, you know, one of the things that does happen for everybody out there, uh, when you do a lot of meditation is that, um, you start, you also meditate while you're asleep. It starts to like, you know, when you're on retreat, it starts to go the entire time. Um, and so, you know, I think what happened for me is, you know, these two parts came together, mind and body. And when that happened, I had um, I had this, um, I had an extraordinary psychological shift. You know, it was like really tough. And then it's a 10-day retreat. And like starting on day six is when it kicked in. It's when it happened. Um, I felt absolute pure bliss. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was mainlining the universe, truly. Uh, but the most important thing is that I felt connected, you know, like I felt um, unlonely,
1: mm.
0: you know, and, um, and really truly for the first time of my life. Cause even when I was a little kid, I felt lonely, you know? Um, and so it just was sort of thing. It just sort of like touched me so much that, you know, within a year, I had moved back to the U.S. I had gotten out of gaming. You know, people thought I was absolutely wacko and mm-hmm. insane to have left a, you know, a career trajectory like that. Um, but I also, because I had had such a, you know, a strong background in gaming and such a love of technology, uh, my conclusion wasn't to like start a monastery or something like that. It was that. Um, technology and, you know, human, you know, health growth and potential could be combined Mm
1: -hmm.
0: that they, that they could go into the same place. And at that point, like, you know, back then, you know, the only meditation app that was out there was insight timer calm hadn't actually been, I think calm was founded that year. Um, And so it was a radical idea. Mm -hmm. And I was introduced by a mutual friend to someone else who had had that radical idea, uh, Jeffrey Martin, who is more focused on enlightenment and technology. Um, you know, and for me, I'm interested in, in that part too. But you know, there's eight billion people on the planet, and you know, we're at a very um, we're at a unique point in history. You know, and every generation thinks that you know, they're at a unique point in history, but we really are because we possess the, you know, we're, we're at that point, we possess the ability to destroy ourselves in a way that we didn't before, you know, uh, and, and destroy ourselves completely. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're at this inflection point where, um, you know, we have, you know, to describe it polarly, we have two really clear possibilities. One looks more like Hunger Games and one looks more like Starfleet. And we're right here right now, like this next decade is about that. And, you know, and so, you know, rightly or wrongly, I mean, the age of extraction, which we're coming out of for all of its flaws, um, there are also, you know, more people getting, you know, nutrition than ever before. I mean, people point to the opposite and they say, oh, there's more obese people, but it's like, if you actually like zoom out, there's more people getting, you know, enough nutrition every day than ever before in the history of mankind. There's more girls in school than ever before in the history of mankind. There's more electricity, you know, than ever before in the history of mankind. So there's, there's a lot of things that when you zoom out, it's extraordinary. And so now we have to make that flip from the age of extraction to sort of like the age of freedom the thing that I think is really the, the key is the human mindset, human psychology, human consciousness, human connection. You know, it's, it's the whole inner landscape, you know, where, you know, we attended to a long time ago, actually in our agrarian societies, but there was a, you know, there's a, there was a, it was a lot wrong with those societies too. You know, it's like, I, I'm, I think probably because I'm a, African-American female, I don't have a lot of nostalgia, (laughs) you know, like, like I don't have a lot of nostalgia, uh, you know, or this idea that, the that there was this perfect golden age where we were all awesome to each other. That's BS. We were like, Mm. we've never had that. We've Mm. had pockets of awesome, but we've never had like, you know, universal awesome. And we've had pockets of awesome for some people but walk a hundred miles in a direction outside of your pocket of awesome. And it can quickly go to non-awesome for you. Um, And so, you know, the the net of my work really, whether it's um, my interest in, you know, technology to help with depression and PTSD and, or technology to support uh, preparation and integration for psychedelics or, you know, technology to do remote neurological monitoring uh, for you know, patients with issues, or you know, um, or the metaverse, you know, which is like you know the 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 digital layers that will be added to our physical layers, which is sort of where gaming comes in, and, and how, how does it support the development of our inner nature, um, you know, in a, in a healthy and positive way. Um, all of that is sort of like a part of the next chapter. Um, And and a part of like one of the the core ingredients for us being able to make this jump from the age of extraction to the age of freedom and this next decade, which will decide, is it Starfleet or is it Hunger Games? Yeah,
1: yeah. And I I guess this kind of comes down to your central thinking around how tech has the ability to scale both novel learnings that we, we have, as well as the wisdom of, of ancient medicine and, and meditation, all the other features of connection that are so central to human beings, um, like compassion, for example. And and I do wanna talk about the Founders Course, because I think it's, it's fascinating that we haven't really thought about suiting uh, which meditation technique or which mindfulness technique is better for certain people. I mean, I personally, enjoy, um, the breadth of different mindfulness techniques, whether it be breathing, whether it be, uh, TM, um, whether it be some techniques that my, my parents whose heritage comes from India taught me when I was, was a kid. Um, but before we get to that, I, you, you touched on something about loneliness, uh, when you were a child, and I'm also fascinated about how you got into gaming itself. Was that something that stemmed from, from childhood as well?
0: Yeah. You know, uh what it was, was I, um, you know, I, um, so, you know, I grew up in Houston, Texas in the eighties and, um, you know, believe it or back, like, like, like I didn't date anyone until I got to college because there was no interracial dating. And I grew up in a white neighborhood. So there was no interracial dating in Texas in eighties and nineties. Like that just didn't happen. You know, it was like, was such a big deal like when dominique devereux showed up on dynasty <laughs> like
1: oh my god um, <laughs> we got dynasty over here in the uk a little bit later so I, I remember vividly my parents watching uh when i was a kid and we were like addicted to the program anyone's listening who doesn't know what dynasty it was like this amazing soap uh, that came from the u.s it was uh, and that was yeah it was a pivotal moment
0: it was a pivotal moment. And so, um, and so I used to watch Star Trek and when Star Trek was on, you couldn't get me to do anything. You couldn't talk to me. You couldn't get me like you couldn't, you couldn't even speak to me. And so for me, what it really was, was like seeing a, you know, seeing a representation of the future where humanity had for the most part decided that they were on the same team, you know, and not only were there, um, not only, you know, was it a, you know, a Metacratic society, uh, but there were brown people there, you know, which is how, like, I knew that, you know, I make it, you make it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there were brown people there. It was a metacritic society. Um, humanity had decided it was on the same page and technology was a really big part of their lives, you know, and, and it just like, it just bloomed in my mind. Uh, So that was one part. Then the second part was, um, so I was always pro-technology, always interested in technology, always like, you know, getting the first thing, you know. Um, And then also, um, you know, I'm a writer, you know, um, and uh, I'm a creative. Um, And so, you know, I had this sense that um, I was really interested in how humanity tells its stories you know, because that's how we understand who we are and what we're doing are the stories that we tell ourselves. And then, you know, as you get deeper and deeper into psychology, then you really understand how, you know, story takes on a different definition, but it really is. And, you know, if you think sort of like to Yuval Harari's work, where he talks about, you know, what is the difference between us and the intelligence of the natural world? um, Part of it is our You know, our OS is our language that allows us to tell stories, that allows us to cross genetic lines, um, you know, in ways that even supremely intelligent other species don't, you know? Um, And so, you know, really it's like, that's that's, that's a key part of it. And so for me, games, when I was in business school and I was trying to figure out which direction to go into, something that really resonated with me and felt, you know, felt truly, truly, you know, resonant with my heart uh, is that it was like clear to me even then that games were the next evolution in human storytelling. You know, that these, that this, these digital layers were going to arrive um, and that it could be a place where we could um, grow and evolve in addition to what we do in in the real. I mean, I think one of the places where where I'm at like, um, and this is a little, you know, this is a viewpoint that not many people share yet, Um, but it's basically that, you know, for me, I think that the digital and the physical layer are already one, like it's already one. So if you were to, if you were to, Um, get a visualization on all the Bluetooth devices in your house that are already talking to each other. Um, You know, when you walk past someone else's cell phone, um, they all ping each other and your cell phone says, no, 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 no. Until it says yes. So there, there actually is like a, you know, if you, if you could only see in data and signal, you would see a web covering the world. Mm -hmm. Plus the internet, plus the hard lines. So it already exists. You know, the short of it is that the insistence that the digital world and the physical world are separate, that some people are still clinging to, Mm -hmm. is keeping us from designing the physical world properly into the digital world. It's overweighting the digital world. So when people are sort of like resistant to technology or resistant to games or resistant to the metaverse or all these things that they feel overwhelmed are coming, it's sort of like, uh, it's, it's really sort of like this resistance to what is and that it's already blended. If we said it was, you know, if they're already one world and we develop some design principles that include things that might include things like, you know, anything that you create needs to have a human in the loop. Anything that you create digitally needs to have someone go outside as a part of it. You know, um, we, could, we could design it to, you know, to be inclusive, uh, but because we say, oh no, this is over here and that's over there, you have the physical designers who are not truly benefiting from the digital space and you have the digital designers that are not truly benefiting from the physical space. And, and ultimately, you know, I think where we need to get is, you know, everything according to its best use. So, you know, we should use the digital world and the immersive world to do things that defy the laws of physics. We should use the augmented world to, to add to our senses. You know, right now when people think of augmentation, you know, a lot of times the, geni- the, the, the creativity is limited to this idea of like, Facebook on your face, like I go to a mm. party or LinkedIn on your face. So like I go to a party or a, a event and I can like scan your profile and mm. see if I want to network with you. <laughs> you know, that's mm. like that's such a lack of imagination. More so, you know, what would be amazing is um, you know, I walk through the forest and I can hear the mycelial network. And it sounds like music to me.
1: Mm.
0: Or I go to a Beyonce concert and I can because I've got my smart shirt on I can feel a hundred thousand heartbeats on my skin, you know, and we're like absolutely able to go into a state together because you know, we can already do that around a fire, um, you know, from the ancient. So, you know, using technology to help us do that together. Um, like that's, that's interesting augmentation. Um and then the, the last part would be, you know, for me, all of these technology tools, the point of them is so that you know, the moment that I actually get into the same room with you, that I'm really ready for the moment, you know, that I'm like, I'm able to be connected. I'm able to be vulnerable. I'm able to you know, articulate my wants and needs. I know what I'm feeling. You know, so that when I get the opportunity to sit across the table from you and to have a coffee with you or a tea or like sit in your garden, that I'm really truly like, you know, able to be there fully. And the technology should allow, should be helping us get to that point so that we can be truly deeply human together. Mm. And to me, that's how it all works together.
1: Yeah. And, and I think this is why it's so interesting talking to you specifically about it, because I feel that your experience in gaming um, and and now transforming into well-being, wellness and, and what you do with transformative technology is giving you uh, an edge um, and an unfair advantage, if you like, because you understand uh creativity, you understand gaming, you understand lateral thinking and thinking outside the box. Uh, and, I, and I feel particularly obviously during the pandemic, we're having a moment here where remote solutions are super important. We're rely on that. Um, we have avatars, um, gaming is massive as is eSports. Memes appear to be the native language of the internet where we can communicate such vivid ideas through simple imagery. Um, that people share and, and it, you know, can, can be used for both good and bad, but, but certainly there's the positive element to it as well. Did you feel that, do you feel that you've had like, almost like a a step up because of your experience in in gaming and, and, and the fact that you're an author as well?
0: You know, I mean, it's been, um, you know, it's one of those things, it's been interesting. It's like, you know, being early is the same as being wrong. (laughs) <laughs> you know, <it's> so, <laughs> so I've had moments over the last seven years where I was like what did I do Ooh. you know I'm like what have I done um and so you know 2020 was the year that um you know I guess 2020 was the year that that I became right you know and it's interesting too is it's like you know, the, the process of being early. Um, And then, you know, I also use the time to do a lot of meditation and a bunch of other things and, you know, you know, and, and sort of like the painful process of being early uh, scraped off, like, you know, scraped off, like a whole lot of ego (laughs) of any kind, you know what I mean? It just really is sort of like, you know, it's, it's interesting. I have a friend who has a whole course on um, entrepreneurship as a spiritual path. Okay. And it really is when you build something, Mm. you know, uh, if, if you allow it to be like some people approach the building of something as um, it's very, um, well, let me put it like this. It's sort of like, if you if you allow it to be, the building of something can be your greatest spiritual endeavor. Um, because, you know, when you create it and build something and put it before the the crowds and put it before the market and put it before uh, employees and put it before investors and put it before all of those things. You know, if you if you allow it to scrape off the shale, you know. The, the you that's on the other side of that, because it's so, you know, there's like endless stories about, so, you know, founder depression, founder mm. psychology, founder all mm. of those things. It can be the greatest spiritual path yeah. um, that, that's out there. Um, and so, you know, in my years of being early, um, I got to a place where, you know, though I am now right, it doesn't really matter to me. I just want to make good stuff and yeah. help people make good stuff. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well that well, that's a nice segue into transformative techno to transformative technology uh, and, and what that is actually. Um because I'm fascinated by the different areas in which you um you review and you uh, analyse, uh, because those are certainly areas that I'm absolutely fascinated by. But well, why don't we start by talking about what transformative technology actually is?
0: Okay. Well, let me give you a really great example that I think would be Um, interesting to your audience. Um, You know, one company that I I love a lot is Vium. And, um, you know, and so right now they do things like, I mean, the core of it is they sequence your gut biome to help you uh, know what's really good for you to eat. Mm Because it's actually really complex out there. It's really hard to figure out what's right for you. There actually is insignificant, data, you know, like, like, like actual data across populations. And the reality is that it's like, you know we don't really know as much as we do about other sort of sciences. And, um, and then, you know, for example, in the U.S., um, you know, the two entities that touch food at all, um, their stakeholders are not consumers. One is the Department of Ag which, agriculture, which was set up to support farmers. And when it was set up, it was to support individual farmers because that was the reality when that department was developed and now they're mostly corporate farms. So they are advocates for corporate farms, uh, which isn't necessarily about nutrition. Um, you know, and then there's the, you know, and then there's, there's a couple of other agencies that are just about like, you know, labels and stuff like that, but not one of them has consumers or eaters as they're in their mission as to who they, uh, you know, as to who they serve. And so in the U S there's only, there's only one funded, maybe there's two, there's either one or two um, funded chairs on nutrition at universities in the entire country. Wow. Uh, I don't know what the UK is like, but the, the bottom line is that we don't actually know. And so, what Viome does that's really interesting—is one, they they help you figure out because, like, you know, one of the things that Nabeen likes to say, it's like, you know, everybody's spinach is good for you, but spinach could actually be bad for someone in particular. And he found out that spinach was actually bad for him.
1: Yeah, um, it was in a, his quest
0: to get younger.
1: We we had him, we had him and Momo on the pod uh, a couple of weeks ago, talking about that story actually about how he found out it was spinach and I think it was broccoli you found that were universally bad for him according to the test results. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and, but what I love is the vision that they expressed that, you know, at some one day you should be able to like, like they're one of the things that they're working towards is being able to treat depression in the grocery store. Mm. You know, they don't talk as much about that. I don't know if they talked about that, but they don't talk as much about that because, you know, it's, um, You know, they're being very deliberate about their science, which is the way to go. Um, They're taking it step by step by step. They're slowly accumulating the largest database of poo Mm. (laughs) that's (laughs) out there and then matching that to psychological state. You know, like one of the things people people on your podcast probably heard that, you know, with almost a 99% um, exactness, you can identify someone with schizophrenia from their from their stool so if you can identify that in the stool there's probably other things in this giant you know mix in this giant bag of chemicals and neurotransmitters and everything and that connection between the brain and the body for all of the different states including depression right now you know we have so many people on ssris Um, there's some really interesting links um, that are not causation yet, it's more correlation between the level of inflammation in the body and depression. Um, and so, you know, if these guys are able to figure out or are able to see like a tie between the gut biome and, in, in inflammation, and inflammation and, you know, um, documented psychological state, then how interesting would it be to be able to, you know, take half the people who are on SSRIs, and just put them on a diet instead. Maybe it's just an inflammation problem. Now, this isn't everybody, this is not science yet. Mm, mm. But, you know, all science begins with a thesis. Yeah. And then yeah. developing a test and then testing that hypothesis. So, so that's the the potential thesis. And that's really powerful. And to me, that's a, you know, that takes someone where it's like you would look at biome and you would be like, how is that a transformative tech? Well, it's like, if they can transform the human mind through the gut, then to me, it's solidly a transformative tech. Or I have another friend who's working on something, which is, I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's crazy. Um, the, um, basically the stress hormones in um, food. Okay. So uh, transfer into the body
1: okay and
0: and i heard this from uh june yoon who is just like an amazing person we should get him on your podcast actually okay. uh-huh. um you know june is someone who routinely just um covers um you know he said he's a very wealthy person um, he's had a lot of success. he's a medical doctor and he routinely puts his weight behind things that have a lot of leverage, uh, including he, you know, developed the first longevity prize, and so you can sort of like Kevin Bacon a lot of longevity progress to those that initial prize,
1: uh, yeah, but more definitely. broadly,
0: you know, the net of transformative tech is it's basically leveraging technology to support mental health, emotional well being, and social wellness. It's for you know, human health, happiness, and performance. And so it's like all of that inner landscape, um, you know, and, 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 um, you know, I'm interested and in talk to people who are working on food things. I talk to people who are working on games. I talk to people who are working on cities, uh, future cities. Um, you know, I talk to people who are making VR. I'm a leading a panel next week where, um, you know, people are working on smell, you know, it's the only unmediated sense and can go a long way to how human beings feel. Mm. Um, and so those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think those areas in which you study and analyze are, um, are fascinating because they're, they're, it's really untapped potential. Um, from, from listening and, and, and reading some of your work, you know, healthy spaces is something I bang on about a lot on the podcast because you can change what people eat, but if they're living in an urbanized environment and they don't have community, they don't have spaces to breathe clean air, it's, it's not gonna move the needle. Um, and I think um, something else I've heard you talk about was uh, emotion recognition. And so I, I do some teaching at UCL Medical School as part of our culinary medicine program to junior doctors um, sorry uh, medical students who are prospective junior doctors and one of the things I've I've uh, recognized is that they're experiencing um, evaluation fatigue it's like feedback fatigue they're constantly being asked to give feedback about how did you like this lesson or like how did you feel about this where do you think it was and if you could use some sort of technology that read people's emotional uh, changes on their face it would sort of give you some some feedback as to whether. They are delivering value from this or they're being taught in the right way. Have you, have you come across some technologies like, like that?
0: Absolutely. Um, Probably one of the most established ones, and and this isn't going to surprise you is um, China. Mm. And um, there's a, there's a company called VIP kids and uh, they were the first to do it, but now most of them do it. And uh, what they did, what their innovation was um, is motion recognition to understand when a Chinese student um, doesn't understand what their teacher is saying um, and so you know the the Chinese culture and school system is not one you know like it's it's not to be known to be one that you know like it's let me say it, like it's not Montessori right mm, no, and yeah. they don't really speak up Um and so VIP Kids um, matches Chinese kids with um, Americans who speak English. Well, you know, it's like they're not even teachers, but the, 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 they're, actually they are teachers, but um, it's really about learning conversational because mm-hmm. it's like, we all have, you know, we all have a language that we can read, but we can't speak because we don't, just don't speak it. And so what VIP Kids does is, Um, On the teacher side, there's a panel that, you know, and and machine learning is very, it's like people are afraid of, you know, what's called AGI events, general intelligence, but there's very little AI in the world. Most of the AI in the world is actually incredibly narrow about what it can do. You know, it all depends on what the data set is and what it's been trained on. And so um, VIP Kids has got a great data set on finding out when Chinese kids don't understand what Americans are saying. <laughs> it's like, really, it's right, like very right. narrow. Yeah. But what it does is like, as the teacher is working with the kids, um, they um, they have like a little uh, indicator on their side that shows confusion. You know, it's trained on Chinese kids' faces when they are mm. confused. And so it mm. shows confusion. It doesn't show it on the kid's side, it just shows it on the teacher's side. So when the teacher can see that the kid doesn't understand, they just stay on that point and -hmm. they just stay there and they stay there and they stay there and they don't move ahead. So, you know, when you hear a lot about, you know, kids falling behind in school, it's usually like, especially with math or things like that, it's usually, it's like one thing, you know, that they didn't quite understand and then it all falls apart after that. And especially math, it's really that way with mathematics. You know, if you miss one or two early concepts that you don't understand, mathematics completely falls apart for you. Yeah, For me, it was was a certain type of fraction, you know, Uh, and we moved when we were learning. I moved as a kid when we were learning this type of fraction, you know, and then it just like never caught, I never caught up again uh, to the extent that I probably could have if I had not missed that one thing. Yeah. um and so that's what VIP kids solves for and in a really measurable standpoint, it's like you know the the Chinese um, school system is um, straight up Thunderdome like it really is like what happens in the Chinese school system that many people don't know It's still the same school system from like the age of the emperors it really is right, Every right. year you test in or you test out okay every single year. And it's so intense that parents take two weeks off during the testing, the national testing. And if you test out at at, at every age, you become unable to go to university, like the big universities. And it starts when they're little. So they test out, you test in or you test out every single year of your life until you get to university. Um, And so it's brutal. And that includes if you, you know, so like these tests are really important. And so VIP kids with this emotion recognition, you know, measurable improvement on the English test, measurable speaking, you know, like measurable, measurable, you know, their success rate of like of language acquisition for English, for kids who were, you know, taking English measurable, dramatically measurable from that moment. As soon as that happened, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, fast following in China, so as soon as that happened, you know, like all the other companies did it. Well,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, but yeah.
0: Um, but that was they were the first, and so absolutely.
1: Well, let's stick with that subject, here, because I I, I think the way I learned right um, a large proportion of my education was rote learning, uh, particularly when I was at medical school. It was just learning lots of things that I had to remember. Whereas now we live in an age where infinite um, information is available in our pocket um, and it and i feel that we won't need uh, that drive to parent learn things anymore so so where do you think tech could help us become more um, uh, productive and more uh, a better value proposition uh, earlier on rather than the current system that we have because it sounds like testing out is not really conducive to a future um, where tech is sort of unanimous with, with everything that we do.
0: Yeah, um, that's a really good point. You know, the the entire balance of you know human knowledge is on like everything that human knows, humanity knows, is on the internet at this point. Mm. So to you know to have a, a corner on what can be learned or trained is to have a corner on something that makes you replaceable. Exactly. Um, and and also simultaneously, one of the th- other things that happened during COVID that people don't notice is that automation accelerated by, you know, I would say seven to, to ten years, um, because people like lots of things. People are like, oh, humans are going to do that. It's like, you know, they started getting rid of it really fast. So that mm. has sped up. And so you know what's happening is that you've got this rise of the software line that anything wrote goes is going to go to software. But what is non-rote is um, humans solving problems together, being creative, collaborating, you know, and like, you know, having sort of jazz together that creates new things. You know, technology can only really do what it can point at. Um, And so, yeah, you've heard about, you know, uh, you know, AI coming up with ways to, you know, solve puzzles in ways that their humans did not intend. But it still was in sort of like a subset of things, you know? Um, And so for, you know, until we get to AGI, which I still think is a while away, um, you know, we're at a place where, you know, what humans have an angle on is like being truly deeply human. Um, And, you know, the skills for being, you know, you know, um, establishing trust, um, being creative, being collaborative. Those are the things that we are not taught in school that we are expected to pick up from the culture. And so that is really the place where, um, you know, those are the future skills. Um, And those are the future of work skills. And that's what work is shifting to, all of it. Um, Collaboration and creativity and innovation. Um, That is what people will get compensated for. The people get compensated the most will be the ones who do that. Um, And, you know, so our educational system should really be about, you know, um, not knowledge, but wisdom, you know, not data, but insight, you know, um, and uh, those types of things. And so, yes, I, I do think a lot about like, well, okay, how do you apply, you know, technology in this, Way, um, and certainly there are cases that are sort of like you know you could see it in remote work, you can see it in sort of like remote gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's all sorts of ways to do it, um, you know. And so I spend a lot of my time actually. I I speak a lot on the future of work um, and ways to foster innovation inside of organizations um, that also lines up to the technology you could use to support it.
1: Uh, yeah, on on that, the technology that could potentially support creativity is there, is there a way to like hack creativity and and create um, I know flow in a team environment as well as to an individual as well? Or are there other things that on the horizon that could induce that? There's some interesting things
0: that that I'm looking at, but you know, one of the keys for innovation uh, is psychological safety, and psychological safety and being nice are not the same thing. Um, you know, uh, Google did a big project called project Aristotle, where they were trying to understand who were the most, uh, productive teams. Um, and they they had very clear metrics. It was sort of like level of innovation. Um, and, um, and basically, you know, the, the, like the value, like the net return on investment that particular teams, you know, delivered back to Google. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they, they set out and, and initially they thought that, you know, teams with like the brightest engineers would be the most innovative, you know, creating the most innovations inside the organization. Um, and ultimately what they found after years of study was that it was the teams where there was the greatest psychological safety. And what that means is the uh, psychological safety means um, you feel safe to take risks with this group of people. And that risk could be, nope, you're wrong. Or it could be, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? Because when human beings are working in groups, that's where the creativity comes from. You know, it's the way that we play off of one another, you know, um, and it would be sort of like, you know, psychological safety means I feel comfortable disagreeing with you too. Because, you know, what dampens creativity is groupthink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one, you have to have, it has to have enough, um, you know, it has to have enough trust so that, um, you know, you can avoid groupthink, um, you know, and it has to have enough trust that you can like throw out crazy ideas. Yeah. And know that you're not going to be ostracized from the tribe for it.
1: And so it's sort of
0: like, it's like this Goldilocks zone. And and the the best, you know, the the most productive teams were ones where leaders could create this Goldilocks zone, where people felt that they could do that. Um, so it was rigorous, lots of accountability, but also, you know, f- you know, freedom to ideate.
1: Yeah. It, it- it makes me think of two things. So uh, A, the confidence to be vulnerable in a, in a group environment and not be ridiculed for coming up with some crazy idea that could actually be, you know, the next Airbnb. Uh, and the second thing, it reminds me of a book by Matthew Syed called Rebel Ideas about why diversity is so important for the evolution of ideas and uh, the overall productivity of a team or whatever business environment or cultural environment it might be. Um, because if you don't have that, then you have what you said, groupthink, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was also going to talk I'm, – I'm actually creating an app myself. It's going to be like the Headspace for Healthy Eating where people can choose what they want to eat for in terms of health goals, and we've done a lot of the academic research, and it's going to be a library of recipes that connect with um, online supermarkets. So maybe we can, right. we can talk about Absolutely. that Absolutely,
0: and what I would love for you to add to that is um... – there's interesting things that are coming up with um, I would love for you to have a thing that allows for continuous glucose monitoring. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, my, um,
0: and then, and, <laughs> yeah. And then I would love for you. So I would love for you to have uh, uh, glucose monitoring with it. And I would love for you to also have mood tracking and you could do it mm. off the camera and some other mm. things with permission, because if people could get a sense of how they're, you know, like food is mood, and anything yes. that you can do to establish that as a, you know, as a science and get enough data sets so that it becomes really clear, is really like that's like that's such an important thing that we need to do. And if that's if and if you make that sort of tie, then it becomes transformative tech, and we can talk more about it.
1: Epic, yeah, that sounds awesome. As promised at the start of the podcast, I was going to give you some of my top tips to look out for in terms of emerging wellness technology. The first one is something that I've talked about a length before, actually, with a few other guests on the podcast, and that is genomic sequencing. Now, a lot of the genetic sequencing tests that you find on the Internet and uh, consumer facing uh, don't have a robust technology and B robust counseling either. So the ones that I recommend are ones that you have to go via a professional genetic counselor slash nutritionist slash uh, dietitian uh, because I think the interpretation of the data is super, super important. So please don't uh, ever forget that, you know, it's quite hard um, to to do these tests alone without adequate support, so always go for those ones. I think another area, the second area, is definitely gonna be the microbiota sequencing. Now, we're we're still at a point at this uh, stage in the technology that is available to us where metabolomic sequencing and uh, microbiome tests are do have a degree of vagueness to them to put it lightly so we can tell some very basic things about our microbiota but we can't really personalize recommendations on everything that we have at this point there are a few companies that were mentioned on this podcast as well uh, and we've had the founders of of vio previously as well where there are some insights that could be useful however i think overall looking at the technology it's still pretty early Uh, Again, it's something that I recommend always having a practitioner guide you through the process because at the end of the day, I've done some of these tests and it goes well over my head as well. And I could potentially bring myself um, to having a restrictive diet if I had interpreted it incorrectly, which a lot of people do, unfortunately. So that's definitely one to look out for. And there are a few other companies uh, bringing that technology to uh, consumers with adequate uh, interpretation and uh, coaches uh, as well in the UK. An area that I think, again, another controversial area, I think everything is pretty controversial until it becomes the the, the mainstay of, um, of how we just do things. Another area is continuous glucose monitoring, something that we did mention on the podcast. I'm actually experimenting with uh, a number of different continuous glucose monitoring devices and calibrating them against the gold standard, which is a finger prick test. And um, a lot of them are pretty inaccurate, I'll be honest. Uh, I'm not gonna name any names uh, of which ones are more inaccurate than others, but there's definitely a degree of straying away from the gold standard, which is your, your finger prick test. Uh, which which if anyone who is a type one or type two diabetic will attest to, can be quite painful if you have to keep on doing that. I think the premise of having a a continuous glucose monitor for people who do not have type one diabetes or um, are at type uh, two or type one and are just looking to, to have some insights around food, I think that actually does hold some value. But one of the things that I've definitely noticed is it can make people very anxious about what they eat. And I can even tell amongst in myself, having knowledge about what my sugar is doing after everything I eat or drink um, is interesting on one hand, but it is also something that can get a bit obsessive as well. So I actually think you've got to be quite careful about the degree to how much you you look into all of these wearables. Uh, and it's something I'm going to be chatting with a few guests about in the future episodes as well, including some that use continuous glucose monitors and have done for many years. Um, and I'd be really interested in finding out about their insights uh, to that too. The other advent is actually uh, using computational methods to take in a variety of data sources. Because right now, we look at things through the lens of uh, singular sources, um, you know, whether it's your bloods or whether it's uh, your your response to, to uh, certain diets uh, based on your glucose, actually combining all of those different data sets and interpreting that with a view to optimizing your diet is very interesting. And I think that's where the value would lie rather than looking at a singular lens. And when we get to that point where we can actually take those different sources of data to provide information to the end user, I think that will be interesting. But again, with the premise of well, How does this change management? And there's no point in doing all this funky stuff with all this amazing bits of technology if you can't change someone's environment or give them the tools to eat well every day. And that's essentially why I started the app, because I wanted to do the simplest thing first, which is to get people to cook from scratch where possible and make it easy to eat well every single day and give them the cultural experience, the variety, the excitement of eating delicious food every single day with the advantageousness of uh, it being evidence-based and us looking through all the different data sources to help people eat toward their health goals. So lots more to discuss on this uh, topic. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and I will be talking about a lot of this stuff over the next couple of months too. And until then, I will see you here next time.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.